MSW Media. Thanks to Thuma for supporting the Daily Beans. Create that feeling of checking into your favorite hotel, but at home with the bed by Thuma. Go to thuma.co slash beans and use code beans to receive a $25 credit towards your purchase of the bed, plus free shipping in the continental U.S. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, October 26, 2022. Today, the Department of Justice is now seeking to compel testimony from Philbin and Cipollone in sealed filings to Chief Judge Beryl Howe. The Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington have obtained emails that show the Secret Service withheld information about credible death threats to Pence, Pelosi, and Schumer on January 6th. Mark Meadows is resisting a Fulton County, Georgia subpoena. Hope Hicks testified before the January 6th committee. And the National Archives denies their Trump referral to the Department of Justice was connected to congressional Democrats. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. The thing about it being Adidas is like, I could literally say anti-Semitic shit and they can't drop me. I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? Well, yay has been dropped by Adidas. Yeah, so nay. Uh, Adidas said nay to yay. Nay to yay. <laughs> and, you know, he changed his name to yay. I'm happy to call him yay. I honestly didn't know. Is it yay or ye? I thought it was ye, but I've heard yay. Okay. Oh, cause Kanye would actually but, make know, sense if that's what he's just like. I'm yay. But, you know, I want to respect his decision to change his name. If uh, You know, send in corrections if I didn't get it right. Absolutely. But anyway, Adidas said bye-bye. And so did Gap, by the way. Yeah. So, I think Gap made a, I think a, a little faster decision, but Adidas did. So, hey, we got it. Yeah, I'm still very confused as why as, as to why Adidas took like 10 days yeah. to, to make that very clear and obvious fucking call. That's weird to me. And I'd be interested to see if any reports come out as to what the delay was about. Like, w- like we're two of the people out of the country traveling and couldn't make it to the meetings or something. Like, what the fuck is the 10 day delay? Um, I don't know. We'll we'll end up seeing what that's about, I think. And I just want to say something quickly about this whole thing. You know, I know that there's people that are like, just ignore Kanye, ignore Kanye. That's not the answer. Ignoring Kanye is not the answer. Supporting your Jewish friends is the answer. So please don't take that route of if you ignore him, he'll go away. He has a massive platform and is spreading a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in this country. Ignoring him is not the answer. Yeah. Just like in 1933, we wouldn't have said, just ignore them, they'll go away. Exactly. It is stuff that needs to be brought to light. It can be brought to light without spreading the hate. It can be brought to light in, in a way to spread love. I'm with you. I see it as an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of love, you've got something coming up later in the program. Yes, uh, absolutely. I'm going to be talking with co-founder of Marked by COVID. Her name is Kristen Urquiza, and she is putting together developing a permanent national COVID memorial, which is just going to be so important to people who have, have lost loved ones or know people who have lost loved ones to COVID. And so uh, we're going to have a, dis- a big discussion about, about what she's working on. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to her. Another interesting story today, Hope Hicks was seen testifying before the January 6th committee. I'm, uh, she's not the most forthcoming person in the world. So I don't know. We'll see, we'll what, see what we got there. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, not, I'm not sure they're going to be doing any more hearings. I mean, they still have till the end of December. And, and that's whether that's 
you know, when the Dems hold the House, which is I'm I, oh, God, is please I, get out and vote people. What I think is going to happen. I think we're going to pick up two seats in the House and three seats in the Senate. But we'll see. That's my little AG prediction. But even, you know, even when the Dems hold the House, that that still dissolves, that committee still dissolves with the next Congress. They would right. have to reform it, write a whole new resolution, vote on it, get new members because a lot of the members aren't going to be there anymore and and then reissue subpoenas and everything. But they were planning on being done by the end of uh, December anyway. So and that's in the resolution. We'll see what happens. But anyway, she's testifying. Hope Hicks. We have a lot of news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Hey, Dana. Remember when I made a big deal? We were at Kathy's getting ready to watch the hearing and Mark Short showed up for a second round of questions before the grand jury investigating the insurrection. And I made a big deal about it because I was certain that he was there because the Department of Justice had overcome Trump's privileged claims. Right. And that it, it would lead to more people being compelled to testify against Trump. Well, check this out. This is out just as breaking news today. Justice Department is asking a federal judge to force the top two lawyers from Trump's White House counsel's office to testify about their conversations with the former president as it tries to break through the privileged firewall Trump has tried to use to avoid scrutiny of his actions on January 6th. To move to compel additional testimony from former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Deputy White House counsel Pat Philbin, the two Pats, just last week is part of a set of secret court proceedings. Trump has been fighting to keep former advisors from testifying before a criminal grand jury about certain conversations, citing executive and attorney-client privileges to keep information confidential or slow down criminal investigators. That's his tactic, is delay. But the Justice Department successfully secured answers from top vice presidential advisors Greg Jacob and Mark Short. We only knew about Mark Short. Now we're learning today about Greg Jacob over the past three weeks in significant court victories that could make it a lot more likely the criminal investigation reaches further into Trump's inner circle. Jacobs, Greg Jacobs' testimony on October 6th, again, which had not been previously reported, is the first identifiable time when the confidentiality Trump had tried to maintain has been pierced in the criminal probe following a court battle. A week after Jacob spoke to the grand jury for the second time, Mark Short went in and spoke for the second time. All four men, the Pats, and, and the two uh, former vice president guys, all four previously declined to answer some questions about advice and interactions with Trump when they testified for the first time. Trump lost the court battles related to Jacob and Short before the chief judge of the trial level U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. last month. All four men have been willing to be as cooperative as the law demands, leaving Trump's team to handle the fight over certain details in the investigation. The litigation around Cipollone and Philbin's testimony may be important for investigators in the long run, given how close the pair was to Trump leading up to and during the Capitol insurrection. Prosecutors are likely to aim for the grand jury to hear about their direct conversations with the then president. The disputes conducted under seal in court because they involve grand jury activity may also spawn several more court fights that will be crucial for prosecutors as they work to bring criminal charges related to Trump's post-election efforts. Witnesses the federal grand jury has subpoenaed, such as Mark Meadows, Eric Hirschman, who I've been bringing up a couple of times, Dan Scavino, Stephen Miller, and Boris Epstein, also could decline to describe their conversations with Trump or advice being given to him after the election. According to the sources, the Justice Department won a trial-level judge's order at the end of September that said Jacob and Short must testify in response to the questions over which Trump had tried to assert privilege. The sealed court case stemming from the grand jury's work had been 
before the chief judge of the D.C. District Court, Beryl Howell. Howell refused to put on hold Jacob and Short's testimony while Trump's team appealed. The Trump team, meanwhile, took several days to respond to their loss, and the Justice Department set a quick turnaround subpoena date for Jacob, leaving him to head into the grand jury under subpoena on October 6th. So here's the timeline, courtesy of Caitlin Polins. At the end of September, Chief Judge Howell ruled for the Department of Justice in the privilege challenge from Trump over Short and Jacob. Then Trump took several days to respond. Howell denied Trump's stay request when he did respond. And the DOJ set a quick turnaround subpoena for Jacob. He went to finish testimony to the grand jury on October 6th. It took less than a week, Dana. Short, Mark Short, appeared on the, the following week, on October 13th. And the D.C. Circuit is looking at all the merits of Trump's challenge. But obviously, the court did not pause the subpoenas. They didn't issue the stay. Thank you so much for the AG. Now, the former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, is resisting a subpoena from Atlanta-area prosecutors investigating efforts by the former guy to subvert the 2020 election in Georgia. That's according to new filed court records. Now, Meadows is urging a judge in Pickens County, South Carolina, where he now resides, to reject an effort by Fulton County, Georgia, to subpoena him for testimony in November. Meadows is a crucial witness for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who's probing Trump's effort to pressure state officials to overturn Joe Biden's victory in the state. Well, Willis's probe includes an expansive inquiry into Trump's wide-ranging effort to subvert the election, as well as issues specific to Georgia. Now, the latter includes a January 2021 phone call in which Trump pressed Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find enough votes for him to prevail in the state. Meadows was on the line for that phone call, and he also traveled to Georgia in December of 2020 to monitor an audit of the state's election results, a trip that has also drawn scrutiny from the January 6th Select Committee. Seems kind of weird. Now, Meadows contends that the belated effort to secure his testimony is now moot as a result of the mid-September 27th deadline. He also pointed to ongoing litigation against the January 6th Select Committee, in which he contends he is immune from testifying to Congress because of his high-level role in Trump's White House and therefore can't be forced to risk breaching executive privilege. Well, that matter's pending before U.S. District Court Judge Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee who is slated to rule imminently. So we're going to find out about that. But yeah, Meadows is in a lot of trouble down there as well. Yeah. And and if Carl Nichols rules incorrectly, it can be very easily and quickly appealed. All right, from Cheney and Wu at Politico, the National Archives is denying Republican accusations that its decision to refer Trump's handling of the classified records to the Justice Department, they're denying that it had anything to do with an inquiry from a top House Democrat. House Republicans have been raising questions over the timing of a referral, which occurred February 9th. That's the same day House Oversight Committee Chair Carolyn Maloney wrote to the agency to raise questions about Trump's handling of the documents that he retained at Mar-a-Lago. But that timing is, quote, entirely coincidental. And that is acting National Archivist Deborah Steidel-Wall. And she wrote that in a letter to congressional Republicans Tuesday. The archives inspector general operates with complete independence from the broader agency, she said, and did not receive Maloney's letter, which was directed to the archivist. Quote, at no time and under no circumstances were NARA officials pressured or influenced by committee Democrats or anyone else. Of course, it's Jim Jordan and Jim Comer of Ohio and Kentucky, respectively, top Republicans on the Judiciary and Oversight Committees that had demanded details from the archives about that October 14th letter, noting that the Department of Justice referral came on the same day that Maloney wrote to then-archivist David Ferriero. 
Archives officials have insisted on their independence, like I said. They take our role as a non-political agency very seriously. That's a preview, by the way, of what's to come from the GOP, who will wail baselessly that the investigations into Trump are political in nature. It reminds me of them saying that the entire Russia investigation was kicked off by a Carter Page FISA warrant that was initiated from the dossier. None of that is true. So they are now trying to say that these criminal investigations were kicked off by Democrats in Congress, and they simply weren't. And this is one reason I think that the January 6th committee should avoid making criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. It's just going to give them another talking point. They're going to say it anyway, but like, why give them a talking point? It's also why the Department of Justice had the inspector general investigate the fraudulent elector scheme first. That investigation, as you know, Dana, was opened in January of 2021, just a week or two after the insurrection. And then later that year, when testimony to Congress, Garland promised to take the DOJ inspector general's recommendation. I figure Wyndham was brought in and the DOJ began issuing those hundred or so subpoenas in the fraudulent elector scheme after the DOJ IG made a referral to Garland. He's insulating the department from politicization. That's what I think. I think that your your beans are probably in the right place there, too. This last story is just horrifying. I mean, we're, we're so lucky things weren't worse. The Secret Service received notice uh, that a shooting threat against then-Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer as the Capitol was under attack on January 6th, but did not pass that along. They did not pass that along to Capitol Police for more than an hour after receiving it. That's according to records obtained by the crew. So we have records of this. Right-wing news channel, Newsmax, received a voicemail suggesting a shooting threat against Schumer shortly before 4 p.m. on January 6th, roughly an hour after the Senate chamber had been breached and well before law enforcement was able to clear them out. A Newsmax editor emailed the voicemail to the Secret Service at 3.59 p.m., indicating the timestamp at which the threat was made. Now, the Secret Service forwarded that message to the agency's Protective Intelligence and Assessment Division, which we'll call the PID in future. Approximately 10 minutes later, U.S. Capitol Police did not receive the voicemail from PID until more than an hour after Newsmax had sent it. That means the Secret Service held on to it. The records do not show how explicit the threat was made in the voicemail. Now, at the time of the voicemail, Donald was refusing to send in any aid to support law enforcement at the Capitol and had publicly pressured Vice President Pence and members of Congress to overturn the election. Crew previously found that the Secret Service held on to a threat against Nancy Pelosi as well until after the insurrection had begun, despite receiving it days earlier. While the Capitol Police was under attack, Pelosi also had reservations about whether she and Mike Pence could trust the agency. Huh. Clearly she was right. The records also revealed a threat directed at Mike Pence, Joe Biden, and their places of residence on the day of the insurrection, as well as an explicit, explicit plans to attack the Capitol. At 6.28 p.m. on January 6th, a Twitter user complimented Donald Trump on his speech and said that the following protest reminded him of, quote, when the French stormed the Bastille, going on to say, quote, the Naval Observatory next, and then wherever Sleepy Joe sleeps. Now, the Naval Observatory is the official residence of the Vice President of the United States. The Metropolitan Police Department notified the Secret Service of the threat approximately 10 minutes after the tweet was posted. The then leader of the Secret Service, Washington Field Office, Matt Miller, replied, fuh, that was it, with a dot, 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 dot. Now, the substantial threats against Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Mike Pence, 
may have been avoided altogether had the Secret Service actually done more to respond to the countless indications of violence that they had in advance of the insurrection. We saw this during the last hearing. They had so much evidence, so much shit. Mm -hmm. This most recent production shows on December 17th, a U.S. Capitol Police official with the Intelligence and Interagency Coordination Division flagged three pro-Trump events that threatened armed violence. One was, quote, an armed march at the U.S. Capitol. The second event was called a million plus patriots to shut Washington, D.C. down to physically stop the steal. That's the whole name of it. And the last one, million militia march. Yet the Secret Service largely reported that there were no, and this is a quote, no indication of civil disobedience. You fucking kidding me? And dismissed the threats in other briefings, even when the threats involved groups such as the Proud Boys and neo-Nazis. Later, the agency appeared to have violated federal criminal law by destroying text messages from January 5th and 6th and providing, quote, misleading answers to the select committee investigating January 6th. The Secret Service was into all kinds of fuckery during this time. That's why I'm saying we are lucky that this wasn't worse. Yeah, yeah. And thanks to the Capitol Police officers and Metropolitan PD that actually held the line. Absolutely. All right. We'll be right back with the co-founder of Marked by COVID. Her name is Kristen Urquiza. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Let me tell you about how I recently upgraded my bedroom to the next level. I bought the bed by Fuma. It's handcrafted from eco-friendly, high-quality, upcycled wood, which is very important to me, and it looks amazing. The minimalist design featuring Japanese joinery really helps elevate the bedroom. It's super supportive for my mattress. It's breathable. And it's made to naturally minimize noise and create space. It opened my room up so much. I love it. The bed by Thuma comes with a lifetime warranty. It ships right to your door in three easy-to-maneuver boxes. It only takes about five-ish minutes to assemble. No tools required. You can easily build it yourself. Along with the bed, Thuma offers other bedroom essentials to elevate bedtime. The nightstand, the side table, and the tray are perfect complements to the bed. Thuma practices an intentional less-is-more design philosophy for the bedroom. Clean lines, subtle curves. Lifestyle-enhancing details, Thuma proves simplicity is the truest form of sophistication. Create that feeling of checking into your favorite boutique hotel, but at home with the bed by Thuma. Right now, go to thuma.co slash beans. You'll get $25 credit toward your purchase of the bed, plus free shipping in the continental U.S. That's thuma.co slash beans, T-H-U-M-A dot C-O slash beans for a $25 credit. Everybody, welcome back. I am happy today to be joined again by a friend of the pod and a co-founder of Marked by COVID, Kristen Urquiza. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm well. Thanks again for having me. It's great to see you again. And I wanted to bring you on because there's just some really amazing things going on with Marked by COVID this month. And can you just remind listeners what Marked by COVID is, the, the vision, the mission, what you believe, and, and the, you know, the activism that you're participating in? Yeah, absolutely. Marked by COVID was uh, founded by me and my partner in the days following the death of my dad from COVID in June of 2020. And uh, since then, uh, we've grown into a nonprofit that is a network of people who've been bereaved by COVID, but also folks living with long COVID and the intersection of that and the economic fallout of the pandemic. So this new stakeholder group that didn't exist a couple of years ago is powerful, it's organized, and together we are working to demand that we rebuild in an equitable and just way from this pandemic and that we don't forget that at the end of the day, over a million people and more and counting have died from COVID and many more disabled by long COVID. 
So we're working on the local, state, and federal level to advance policy to see that, but also ensuring that we have memorials, not only in time, but also in space, so that we can come together, reflect, heal, and commit to do better. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that's really, really important. And, you know, before we hit record, you and I were having a brief conversation about the power of knowing that you're not alone and you have an event coming up. Can you talk a little bit about this event and, you know, the power that comes with the community that you've built? Yes. So we have been working for the last two years um, with folks in our bereaved community as well as artists and other partners to develop a national COVID memorial concept. And it's going to be debuting in Los Angeles at the Dia de los Muertos celebration and observations at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And we are so excited to be bringing this memorial project out into the real world for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, We need to be uh, constructing and building large-scale memorials in cities and states across the country that need to really be informed by people who have lost loved ones so that it actually fits the bill of being a space for healing and collaboration. But also on that note of kind of coming together, which we'll be doing safely and requiring folks to be masked in the perimeter and it's an outdoor event. So we're thinking about accessibility. Connecting with people who've been impacted by COVID, we have found in the COVID loss community, and and this is something that you are reflecting on as well in your own community, has been one of the most essential ways for people to start to put their life back together. You're with company that went through a very similar and horrific experience, who lost a loved one, who lost their health, and that sort of validation is not only um, a way to sort of kind of find your footing, it's also a way to reconnect with your power. And um, I have found it to be such an essential part of my own grief journey of having conversations with people who have gone through a similar type of pandemic as I've gone through. Can you talk about the power of dovetailing this with Dia de los Muertos and and how COVID has disproportionately impacted BIPOC communities, because I think that that's a super incredible message, particularly with, you know, those of us who live in California and understand the holiday. Explain a little bit about it and the impact that that can have. Yes. So I'm Mexican-American myself. Um, My dad, who passed from COVID, was Mexican. And for folks who don't know, Dia de los Muertos is a holiday that's celebrated throughout Latin America, where we believe that it's the time of year in which the afterlife and our current life are closest to one another. So it's very common to see people gathering in cemeteries, holding festivities, creating altars where they have pictures of their loved ones and food offerings so that they can come and have a little nibble as they're coming and crossing over to the other side. It was really important to me to honor my father in this way But also because of what you're talking about, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted all BIPOC communities, people of color, but in particular, the Latino community. We've lost four years of life expectancy due to the pandemic over the last two years as compared to folks who are uh, white who have lost less than one year. 
So this pandemic is shouldered on the backs of folks who disproportionately are out working in the fields or in the grocery stores are coming in constant contact with individuals who are sick. And as a result, it's, um, you know, we're carrying those losses. And I believe that that shouldn't, it, that the burden should be on all of us in a way that really is, is much more equal and fair versus one particular community, you know, or another being singled out. Yeah, and we know recently that the paths have crossed again with the the Latin community with the misappropriation of coronavirus funds under the CARES Act Mm -hmm. used by Ron DeSantis to transport the Venezuelan asylum seekers to trick them and and send them to Martha's Vineyard, uh, for example. And I think there's more planned. But good news, we just found out that the Department of Treasury Inspector General is now running a federal investigation on the misappropriation of those COVID funds under the CARES Act by Ron DeSantis to transport, to to manipulate and use those asylum seekers for political ends. And and the fact that they used coronavirus funds to do that is now under federal investigation by an inspector general at the Department of Treasury. So if you didn't hear that yet, I just wanted you to be aware and deliver that good news to you. So hopefully we can get some accountability as to where those funds went. What what are your thoughts on that? It is infuriating to me to see just how we've misallocated so much pandemic spending, in particular on sort of these fantastical witch hunts of folks from south of the border. And, you know, really what needs to be happening is reinvesting these funds into ensuring that people can go to work safely, can study safely, can worship safely. And you know, they get the mental health care they need. Yes, deal with exactly. long COVID. <laughs> yes, know. the um, there's there was also um, a report that came out not too long ago that started to look into just what the financial impact is to Latino communities and the loss of work time due to long COVID. It's terrifying. And whenever the racial wealth gap uh, was already you know stupendous before the pandemic, this leaves me wondering. Where are we going to be in 5, 10, or 15 years if a huge, let me strike that and say, the growing majority of the population doesn't have economic mobility in this sideline from health reasons? Folks like DeSantis, and as well as Governor Abbott in Texas and Ducey in Arizona, where my dad lived, have continued to use Latinos as the straw man carrying disease when really it's their policies that have forced workers into unsafe working conditions that have created this crisis on this this level that we're struggling to even wrap our head around. Yeah. And and they do that as a way to dehumanize Mm -hmm. specific groups so that they can, you know, get get away with uh, performing atrocities. You know, I remember the Department of Homeland Security under Donald Trump wanting to put like spikes and moats and alligators and shoot them in the legs, like all of this absolutely disgusting and terrifying policies that they were floating. And part of being able to do that and quote unquote, get away with it in the public eye, or at least in white America's eyes, is to dehumanize. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, part of these stunts where they're misappropriating COVID relief money. And it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's, I, I'm glad they're investigating it, but I feel like it's it's taken a little too long. 
uh, most of these investigations take too long. (laughs) I mean, we need to have an investigation in the pandemic overall, right? Like where we went wrong, what went right in the occasions that we did and hold a whole host of elected officials accountable who have been pushing you know, their, the agenda of their rich buddies versus the agenda of the public when it comes to the pandemic. But on this idea of dehumanization, I want to go back to that. You're absolutely right. And it also is part of the reason why we've focused on, you know, bringing these memorials to life because it really not only provides for the bereaved an opportunity to be seen and heard, it allows for our loved ones to come out of the shadows. Part of the problem with this pandemic, in addition to political failure and uh, misappropriation of funds, is also we didn't have sort of that unifying visual to bring us all together, to unite and say, oh my gosh, what is happening? Like we suffered behind doors where we were saying goodbye over Zoom or FaceTime. And this memorial um, project is, is, is really bringing those individual pictures, testimonials, and names to the forefront to really help us interact with, holy cow, it's over a million people in this country and counting that have died, that leave behind huge trenches of loss, sorrow, and mourning. And guess what? Even if we have, if, if you're lucky enough to not have lost a loved one, I bet the last couple of years have been really challenging and we need to take a moment and a beat before rushing into normal to uh, recognize that and sort of, you know, a a deal with, with that fallout. Yeah. And, and I think that the power of knowing you're not alone gives you courage, gives people courage to tell their stories. And I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons that I think that we saw it with the AIDS, AIDS, HIV pandemic. We saw, I mean, the Me Too movement, whatever it is, where we learn and tell our stories and and understand that we're not alone. That's where we get our power from. So tell everyone again how they can RSVP to this event, where it is, and if they have any questions, who they can contact. Yeah. So um, we are coming together, marked by COVID, to preview our National COVID Memorial in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery on October 29th as part of their Dia de los Muertos observations. For folks uh, interested in learning more about our memorial and memorial work, you can visit markedbycovid.com slash memorial. Awesome. And if they have any questions, is there an email that they can send? Yes. You can find us at info at markedbycovid.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and check those DMs often and off often. So hopefully um, we can get your questions answered and see you there to really have a moment to reflect upon what we're going through and how we can do better. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And thank you for putting on this event. I know it's a lot of hard work and I know you're doing it in the face of a lot of opposition. So I appreciate you and I appreciate the work that you're doing with Marked by COVID. And um, yeah, thank you for coming on, Kristen Urquiza. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, I'm Ben Micellis. I'm Brett Micellis. And I'm Jordy. And we are the hosts of the Midas Touch podcast, the top rated, top watched political podcast for 
pro-democracy content. Each week, we do multiple episodes where we break down the political issues of the day here in the United States and abroad as we fight for democracy. Isn't that right, Brett? That's right, Ben. We've had conversations with some incredible guests like White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Beto O'Rourke, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, Glenn Kirshner, Mary Trump, celebrities like Deborah Messing, Alyssa Milano, Michael Rappaport, and more. So subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast wherever you get your podcast. That's the Midas Touch, M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H podcast. Jordy, anything to add? Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, corrections, confessions, uh, Halloween pet photos, I love people, pe- uh, people pet photos. What? You heard people her? Halloween people pe- photos. Maybe you have people as pets. Hey, keep it moving. Hey, yeah, yeah don't stare. <laughs> I love, keep I it love moving you today. Keep it moving. Just keep it moving. <laughs> um, it's just anything you want to send us, really. Just go to dailybeanspod.com and click on contact and make sure that you're registered to vote. And that you know how to vote and you have a plan to vote and that you bring like a, like a million people with you. Just like a million. First up from Mooney, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. Thanks for all you do. You're my first order of business every day, along with my coffee, of course. I do have a correction for Dana. There are no wild tigers in Africa. Huh. You should huh. see me scream at Africa collections, fabric, paper that include tiger stripes. There are, however, some beautiful cats to encounter in Africa. I saw my first wild African cat last month and it looked a lot like my floof just a little bit larger. I'm including my three favorite African cat photos as pod pet tax, leopard in a tree, cheetah not in a tree, they cannot climb as they have dog-like claws, dad lion hanging with the kids. East Africa is the second home of my heart. Oh my God. Look at these photos. Thanks for all you do. I'm voting blue over Q and took two with me. Nice. Oh, kitty baby. Mooney, these photos are fantastic. I don't mind a correction like that. These are amazing. The light in that second photo. That's like the golden hour. That baby in the first photo. I know. Claw my face off, but it's perfect. I want to cuddle. I know. Me too. Thank you for the correction. My lions and tigers and bears was sort of a joke, but I've also had corrections on the bears. So I very much appreciate it because I'm not sure I would have (laughs) known that there weren't tigers in Africa. All right. This is from Trevor, pronouns he and him. Hello, Beans Queens. I'm a relatively new listener, but have to tell you that yours is the podcast that gets played first every morning. I trust the breakdown and analysis I get from you to give me the most accurate and reliable understanding of the news of the day. I try to stick to AP, uh, Reuters, I always mess that one up, Reuters, and NPR for my news, and I find it to have very little, if any editorialization getting in the way of the actual news that's happening. Your editorializing, however is just my cup of tea. Hmm. I'd like to submit what I have always thought was a fun whoopee story. Yes. Yes, we've missed these. When I was an itty bitty, I had a favorite blanket that I never let out of my sight, ever. Needless to say, it often became quite dirty and was looking a bit... Threadbare? Threadbare, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's funny when I see words I haven't either ever seen or in a long time where I'm like, what does that mean? That means what it says. My my parents wanted to start weaning me away from it. And my mom came up with the idea to to cut one inch from alternating sides every time they washed it. So over the course of a few months, it went from a blanket that was appropriately sized for a youngster like me to a scrap of blanket smaller than a washcloth. 
Now, apparently, I was a stubborn little dude and refused to acknowledge the incredible shrinking whoopee. <laughs> However, as an unexpected twist, my mom says that one day they had put the tiny remnants back in my room after being washed and emerged from my room, holding it only to dramatically walk into the living room, give it a long look, and nonchalantly toss it over my shoulder, never to be sought after again. I was so young that I don't have memories of this, but it's one of those stories that I've been told and retold over the years since you asked so nicely for more Whoopi stories. I thought I'd toss this one in for funsies. Keep up what you do. The world is better for having your voices in it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Trevor. Thank you. That's so funny. You're like, it got so small. You're like, nope, I'm done. Done Done with this Whoopi. The incredible shrinking Whoopi. Next up from Paul, pronouns he and him. First, thanks for bringing Ariel Elias to the show on Monday. Watched her on Kimmel last night, and she absolutely killed. Very funny. Dana, that's the comedian that got the full seltzer, hucked at her on stage. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, I watched the set on Kimmel. She had a great set. Yeah, she's awesome. Sharing a few pics to celebrate Halloween. First is my lovely daughter, Utah med student. This actually is not a Halloween costume. (laughs) Yikes. Uh, This pic was from when she participated in a disaster preparedness exercise in Utah where she posed as a victim of a terrible bus crash. Kudos to the makeup artist. Next two pod pet contributions are of our grand kitties. First is Hagrid in his Halloween garb. Hagrid loves to sit on the front stoop of their townhouse and pounce at the many dogs that are walked by. He has figured out they are all on leashes. Hagrid is too. And he has nothing to fear. Now every dog that walks by stops and looks to see if Haggy is outside. (laughs) And last is our grand kitty, Punky. She does not do costumes. My daughter has the scars to prove it, but is happy enough to share an Oreo, cream side only. Thanks for all you bring to my life and the world. This is wicked makeup. Yes, it is. Oof. Thank you for that, Paul. Look at the kitty. Ah, no, the kitties are cute. You can have them. What is the show they're watching? Is that, is that, uh, uh... Oh, what's the name of that show? Oh, that's Big, Big Bang, Bang Theory. Theory. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well done. I spy. All right. This is from Ryan, pronouns he and him. A triple banger of good news. Puppies, promotions, and personal leave. First <laughs> and foremost, I love your work. The aha moments, the oh my gods, and the laughs I get from the pod are the highlight of most of my days. Because I'm listening from Australia, I get to wind down and sometimes get wound up with a dose of beans at the end of the day, and it's the best thing ever. Right. The bad bit first. I haven't written about this before because I turn into a bit of a mess when I think about it. Fair warning. If you make me cry. Here we Uh go. (laughs) Back in August, my best mate, Casper, the schnauzer, went away. We were all the dog park and something happened. He collapsed in my lap and he didn't wake up again. He just went. My vet said it was likely his heart and that he didn't suffer. It was quick and he was in my arms and that's as much as I could ask for. 15 years was good innings but still not long enough. I don't think any length of time could be long enough. He was the best. He went and he took a chunk of me with him. And since he left, life generally has been just not right. People I'd always nod or wave to on a morning walk with my boy suddenly found their feet interesting. A house that stays silent, no matter how much you jingle your keys against the front door, just isn't right. It's just not. Fast forward two months and I receive a call from Casper's breeder responding to an inquiry I left with them in the BC Times, which is the British being before COVID, before COVID times. She has a puppy that is having a bit of a time finding a home. Meet Miss Charlie. I add Miss because otherwise everyone assumes she's a boy. 
And for that, fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> she is ahem, an active type and has what you might call a strong personality. She's been with me a few weeks and is almost used to me bothering her toe beans while we lay on the couch together. I'm relearning patience. She's learning trust and love. And I feel like she's the cherry on the icing on the cake. Just the best. I'm smitten. And I didn't think I was ready, but apparently I was wrong. Secondly, I got a promotion. I've been, quote, temporarily doing a job for quite a while. The public service, civil service is an interesting beast. And just recently got appointed to the position permanently after a months long and highly competitive selection process. Nice. Nice. I've celebrated with some Patreon bits and bobs, and I think I might need to sponsor a Beans membership just for good measure. Mm. Very nice. Third, I had that quarterly conversation with my boss recently. That's right. I just had leave approved for the week commencing the November 7th. <laughs> The, uh, yep. Is there anything interesting happening in the U.S. politics that week? Uh-huh. The midterms? I'll be active in the Facebook group. I'll be there to watch parties and available to take the baton for any of the Leguminati fam who feel like they need to hand it over for a bit. I'll be cheering from the sidelines. You all have had enough foreign interference in your election, so I'll just watch <laughs> and cheer. And I can't wait to see how bigly y'all vote in, in numbers too big to manipulate. I hope you know that you have like-minded souls all around the world urging you on and whispering words of encouragement. Again, thanks for all that you at the MSW crew do. You're being the change I'd like to see in the world. Also, Louis Gohmert is so dumb, he thinks the capital of France is F. <laughs> and that's a great way to end that. Oh my God, give me this puppy. Uh, I want the puppy. I, I, I thought you might. This that is the puppy most, just uh, healed my heart. Schnauzer. I, I love how they're like, they say that, uh, the, you know, when you're taught, when you're describing the, the dog active type, yes. strong personality, Miss Charlie is cute. Just absolutely adores that a little feather stuck on her face. It's either a feather or her chest is white, but it's, I'm going to say it's a feather on her mouth. She's what? Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> she's she, really cute. Is adorable. I'm so happy. And congrats on the promotion and the new pup, Ryan. This is all great. And thanks for cheering for us. From, yeah, we from need down it. There. Good Lord, we need it. We really do. And um, everybody, thanks so much for sending all these things in. More Whoopi stories. I love Whoopi stories. More puppies uh, and, and babies for Dana. Don't yes, forget. Please. Dana loves the babies. Baby Thank photos. You. Baby photos are my favorite. So please send that in to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Dana. Yes, dear. Any final thoughts for today? No, no, dear. All right. <laughs> yes, dear. No, dear. <laughs> no, dear. <laughs> hey, I know how to oh. keep this relationship right. Yes, dear. <laughs> no, dear. <laughs> All right, sugar. Anyway, uh, we're going to be back tomorrow in your ears with more news. I, I'm, I'm very. I, what else could possibly break? Every, every day, I, I finish this show and I think, what could even possibly be next? Uh, we will find out. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. And please take someone with you. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And that was The Beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. And the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>